Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back. Come follow me, Book of Mormon year. This is Jacob 1 through 4, and we're looking forward to today. We have a lot to talk about. All right, we're going to be covering uh, quite a few things from Jacob chapter 1 through 4 today. Um, with Nephi dying, we're going to see the, uh, the kingship and the ruling of the people pass on, and it doesn't go to his younger brother Jacob, it, it goes to somebody else, and we'll talk about that, and not just that, but what kingship means in an Old Testament context. Taylor's going to share some, some fun insights with you from Deuteronomy. We're going to talk about the temple and this, this experience where Jacob's bringing the people to the temple, and uh, he's, he's got some pretty serious things to address with them, and we'll, we'll talk about that. One of the critical elements of that speech and that experience with Jacob teaching his people is his rebuke of the Nephite men and how they're treating their women and their wives and their children. And so Jacob makes some pretty clear statements regarding the Lord's law of marriage and when he will command the exception to that law. And not just that, but Jacob goes very, very prophetic on us in chapters 2 and 3 talking about what's going to ultimately happen with the Nephite and the Lamanite uh, nations because of, according to Jacob, how they're treating the women, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, then we're going to finish up with covenants and talking about how um, Jacob is connecting a whole bunch of dots for us in the Old Testament, uh, dots that you don't find in the Old Testament, but Jacob's going to going to teach us about the Godhead, about the law of Moses, and about that covenant connection. It's beautiful. Okay, as we jump into Jacob, let's give a little bit of context about God's expectations for leadership. Back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 17, 14 to 20, God explains what he expects of a covenantal king or leader. And we're not going to go through it all right now. We encourage you to go to Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, grab a little pen or marker, and look for the do's and don'ts, the covenantal instructions for a king or a leader. We've written them out here, but primarily there's a bunch of things God does not want the king to do and things that God wants the king to do. And if you look at what God wants the king to do, it's, I want you to model how to live the covenant path. Teach it to others. And if we look at the Book of Mormon, particularly what Jacob's teaching, you can see that he's deeply influenced by God's expectations of the king living the covenant path, and teaching it to his people. That's very, very helpful. Thank you, Taylor. As you jump into the, the book of Jacob now, you'll notice right out of the chute that Jacob gives you a timestamp that it's been 55 years since Lehi left Jerusalem. You know that Jacob was born out in the wilderness after Lehi left Jerusalem, so you know that Jacob is at the very, very most 54 years old, uh, could be 53, 52, 51, somewhere in that range, just so you can picture the man, Jacob. Um, you'll notice that uh, he doesn't get the, the kingship from Nephi, his brother. Um, verse 11, the people were desirous to retain a remembrance of, his, of Nephi's name, whosoever should reign in his stead were called by the people 2nd Nephi, 3rd Nephi. So the next king gets that label, 2nd Nephi, it's not Jacob, his brother. 
Jacob almost seems to, to be put a little bit on the fringe as the prophet, as the, the priest, but he's absolutely filling this role that Taylor's describing of what a leader or what a king should do. He's doing that, and he is going to hit really, really hard on some of these other don'ts, and there's no question he's very familiar with Deuteronomy 17, so as you jump in, we highly encourage you to, to take an opportunity to read those, those verses there. Um, I wanted to just point out one thing in, uh, in chapter 1 before we dive into chapter 2, and it's in verse 7 where he says, wherefore we labor diligently among our people that we might persuade them to come unto Christ and partake of the goodness of God. Let me pause there for a minute and, and reiterate something that we shared in a previous video. It's very unusual that, uh, that in the Book of Mormon, especially in a time period that's, you know, 544 BC, that uh, Jacob would be using the word Christ in an Old Testament world because Christ, as we've said before, comes from the Greek word Christos, translates to Christ, and these aren't Greek people, they're Hebrew people, and in Hebrew it's Mashiach, it's the Messiah, the Anointed One, Christos is the Greek equivalent, but it was revealed to Jacob that the name of the Mashiach would be, he would be known as Christos or Christ, so he's using that name constantly, just watch for how often he loves using the name of Christ, bringing people to Christ. Um, I think that's significant because other scriptures tell us that there is no other name under heaven given whereby mankind can be saved, only in and through the name of Jesus Christ. Both of those are his Greek names that were revealed to both Jacob and Nephi in the Book of Mormon. And so uh, the, the B.C. Christian elements are, are beautiful in here. So notice the rest of verse 7 come unto Christ and partake of the goodness of God, that they might enter into his rest, lest by any means he should swear in his wrath they should not enter in, as in the provocation in the days of temptation while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. Many of you might read that phrase or that verse and think to yourself, uh, I have no idea what he means when he says, as in the provocation in the days of temptation while the children of Israel were in, in the wilderness. Um, this is highly, highly relevant to our day today as we liken the Book of Mormon to our teachings or to, to our own life setting. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me set the stage really quickly. Here's what happens. You have the Holy Land that's promised to the children of Israel. Here's Jerusalem. They've been – they've come out of Egypt. They come to a place called Kadesh Barnea, and we camp here. We have provoked and provoked and provoked and provoked the Lord with all kinds of things, everything from the golden calf to the, um, the other struggles that lead us up to this point. Now we camp, and Moses sends in 12 spies. They go in, spend 40 days searching, they come back carrying the fruits and the flowers and the honey and the milk from this land, and they say, surely it is a land that floweth with milk and honey, but we're not able to take it because there are giants on the land and they make us look like grasshoppers. Um, at that point, there are two of the spies that step forward and say, no, we are able to take it. Joshua and Caleb say, 
let's go in. At that point, the people say, where are the stones? We've got to kill those two to silence them. At which point, Moses steps in front of them and says, okay, that's it. That's it. You have provoked the Lord so many times, but now that that's it. Put the rocks down. You're not going to stone them. None of you are going to get to go into the promised land because you don't trust God. You don't have faith that you need. So we're going to about face, go out into the wilderness, and you're going to wander for for 39 and a half years until the older generation dies off. Now, some of you are wondering, so what does that have to do with me and why do I care as I read the Book of Mormon and Jacob? Brothers and sisters, what Jacob's doing here is he's using a story that they know well from the Book of Numbers, chapters 12, 13, 14, that whole sequence there, and others where they've provoked the Lord in the wilderness. He's using that story to say to his people, there's another promised land. It's not just this promised land, and it's not just the America's promised land that we're now in. The symbolism is there's a promised land we're trying to get to. There's a lot of opposition. There are giants on the land. There's opposition in – there's an opposition in me, there's opposition to me, there's opposition. But if I trust God, the Lord God of Israel who brought us through the Red Sea on dry ground, that he's well able to help me take this this land, so to speak, and arrive, then he will help me. But if I refuse to have faith in him and say, it's just too hard to be a good member of the church, it's too hard to stay on the covenant path, it's too hard to keep these commandments, there's so many in it, and the opposition and the temptations are so big and the addictions are there, I can't do it, then he says, all right, you've judged yourself. And so he's he's begging his people, look at verse 8, wherefore we would to God that we could persuade all men not to rebel against God, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ, view his death and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. Wherefore I, Jacob, take it upon me to fulfill the commandment of my brother Nephi. Now many of you listening shouldn't have a hard time making a jump from Jacob to, to our day today as you analyze your own life, your own family, your own relationships, and you recognize there are giants upon the face of your land, there are struggles, but you have the Lord God of Israel on your side, and if we'll just put more of our trust in him, he's well able to help us take these these, uh, oppositions and these trials and tribulations and temptations and face them and, uh, and arrive, so to speak, someday in the Promised Land. What I love about this, Tyler, is it draws us to the temple. Where does Jacob teach? He goes to the temple to convince everybody that we're on this journey, this covenant path to the Promised Land. The temple symbolizes the presence of God. And if you look at verse 19, Jacob talks about his role. And remember, we just talked about leadership and what a good leader does is models the covenant path and teaches the covenant path. Listen to what Jacob says. And we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Wherefore, by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments, otherwise their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. Jacob understands that his job as a leader is to teach the truth, to model the covenant path, and to teach the covenant path. And if he doesn't do that, he actually could be responsible 
for misleading people, taking them to other paths. And just briefly, the word blood in this context is actually a symbol of responsibility. So symbolically, if other people's blood or their sins are upon Jacob's garments, he's responsible for what they've done because he didn't teach them truthfully. But if he has taught them the covenant path and they live it, well, then their sins are upon themselves if they don't repent. And what's interesting is, ultimately, the only blood we should have on our garments when we enter the presence of God is the blood of Jesus Christ, because he has asked us to wash in his blood. And of course, that's all symbolic. We're baptized, we partake of the sacrament, we receive temple endowments. All those things are us taking upon ourselves Jesus Christ. But again, the focus here is the temple, that all these stories in the Old Testament are symbolic. I mean, they happen, but they're also symbolic about our life journey back into the presence of God. And as Tyler talked about, there are a lot of difficulties, but if we focus on the temple, and this is where chapters two to three that we'll talk about here in the next few minutes, Jacob goes to the temple to teach people about the covenant path and their obligations and their duties to stay true and pure. That's beautiful. The, the comparison there, Taylor, is a, is a beautiful symbolism that the only, only blood on our garment being that of the Savior's, it is the most powerful cleansing agent, period. And the symbolism of let your garments be washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Nothing, nothing stains clothing faster than blood except for Jesus. The symbolism is beautiful, the purity. On to chapter 2, into this speech that Jacob is going to give. Um, by the way, as you read, as you're just reading through and studying on your own or with your families, I hope you can sense the different voice coming, coming out of these pages from Jacob compared to, to Nephi's personality and his writing styles. Jacob's a different, a different prophet. He's a different writer. Um, he gets up in front of these people at the temple and it takes him – he spends 12 verses lamenting the fact that he even has to, to address these topics that he's about to, to share with the people. He's saying things like, oh, I am so sorry you women and children have to be here to hear this. I wish I could speak to you about the wonderful and beautiful things, the glorious things of the kingdom, but I've got some really, really rough things. And as you're reading chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, you're like, okay, what's what have you got here, Jacob? It takes him a long time to get into the, the rebuke, but boy, once he gets into the rebuke, he, he takes off the boxing gloves and he lets them have it, okay? Um, you will notice as you do your own personal study in verse 13 through 22, he's going to address this issue of them seeking after gold and silver and precious things, one of the items that was on that list from Deuteronomy. Don't, don't have your whole life's purpose be devoted to, to accumulating wealth, which these Nephites are, are doing. But then he says, uh, I've, I've got to change subjects here and I've got to tell you about a grosser crime, verse 22. I, I really wish I didn't have to do this, but here I go. And then he jumps into David and Solomon in verse 23 and 24, telling them, uh, behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. Now, some of you might be familiar with the Doctrine and Covenants where it talks about God giving David and Solomon multiple wives. So, that's the thing is God started out with this 
uh, with this law for David and Solomon, he gave them multiple wives, but then they went beyond that. With David, the famous story of David and Bathsheba being the ultimate example, with Solomon, he ends up, according to the biblical account, with 700 wives, 300 concubines. It's just beyond the beyond of, of ridiculous. So now what you have is Nephite men who are reading these scriptures saying, hey, let's liken these scriptures unto uh, us. That, let's, let's live that. That law. is not what God expects. <laughs> yeah, and so now Jacob, I'm just going to give it as my opinion that there is no place in all of our scriptural canon that is more clear, succinct, and direct on what God expects regarding marriage than what Jacob gives us right here in a society where he's now in charge as the prophet to correct this wrong that he's seeing, he, he cuts straight to the core here. So if, if you want, next to your verse 27, you could write in the margin the law or law of marriage. This is, this is the most simple definition of the law of marriage of anything I've seen in all of scripture. Wherefore, my brethren, hear me and hearken to the word of the Lord. So he's not saying, I'm just giving this as my opinion. He is now speaking for the Lord uh, with some pretty powerful authority here. For thou shalt not any man among you have, save it be, one wife, and concubines he shall have none. That's the law. It, I, I don't know that he could be any, any more succinct or direct or clear. One wife, no concubines. Um, by the way, there have been a lot of things written about polygamy through the years in, in our church history as well as in the past. The reality is, is some people have, have taught that, oh, well, this is the higher law or this is what every, everyone's going to be living someday. I if that were the case, I find it very interesting that all of our major stories and all of our books of scripture begin with, look at the Old Testament, Adam and Eve. It's not Adam and Eve and Alice, it's just Adam and Eve. Um, your New Testament begins with Zacharias and Elizabeth, with Mary and Joseph. It's always one man, one woman. Uh, the Book of Mormon begins with Lehi and Sariah. These stories in church history, it all began with Joseph Sr. and Lucy. It's one man, one woman. Now, that brings up the question, some of you are wondering, well then, why did our church live the law of plural marriage? Jacob addresses that. Notice in verse 30, you could write in the margin exception or the, the uh, time when the law is kind of put on the side. Look at verse 30, for if, that's a big if, if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, when, he's, when he refers to the Lord of hosts or the Lord of Sabbath, yeah. what's the implication? So, just a quick pause here, if you look at the titles for God that Jacob uses, it's very interesting, sometimes he just says God, sometimes Lord, sometimes Lord God. Lord God actually means Jehovah, but here he says Lord of hosts. We usually just pass by that, what does that mean? It actually, God is the divine warrior, I mean he's many things, but he's the divine warrior and the hosts of heaven are his military escort. And so, if you mess with God, you want to take him on, he is the ultimate power, and when he says, I, the Lord of hosts, basically, don't even think about doing this without 
my express allowance of you doing it. Because I'm the Lord host, and if you start doing this on your own without me commanding it, you're in big trouble. I'm bringing all the military after you. Numberless concourses of heaven. Jacob is very interesting. Jacob uses that very specific title. And I'll just say this. The farm boy from upstate New York, I don't think he understood all the Hebrew titles of God that he would say, in this context, I'm going to actually say Lord of hosts to actually indicate how serious God takes this. He does not want you to do things he doesn't want you to do. Yeah, when you're seeing God as you read through your Book of Mormon, when you watch the titles that the prophets and the writers use for him, whenever they're using Lord of the Sabbath or Lord of hosts, it's this idea of justice and judgment and coming down because people have broken the covenant. Um, and by the way, notice verse 28, uh, I, Lord God, delight in the chastity of women, whoredoms are abomination before me, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Uh, and, and a side note on that one, verse 28, the Lord delights clearly in the chastity of men as well, but Jacob's audience, you understand, he's telling the women and children, I am so sorry you have to hear this, but his audience is the men. He's hitting these men directly, and he's telling them, the Lord delights in the chastity of the women, and you're, you're taking that away, and you're now going to deal with the Lord of hosts. Verse 29, wherefore this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, or cursed be the land for their sakes. This is the justice and the judgment side. Now verse 30, the exception. If I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people, otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. It's interesting when I'm teaching in a, in a large auditorium at BYU, if I ask the students, raise your hand if you know that you have, um, if, if you're a descendant of somebody who's in a, a plural marriage up in your genealogy pedigree chart, over half the students will raise their hand, and I'm raising my hand as well. My, my grandfather, um, my dad's dad, Brigham Griffin, is the 20th child of Thomas Griffin, and Brigham was the youngest child of the second wife. I would not be here if the Lord had not commanded plural marriage to be lived as an exception from the 1830s through 1890. I, I wouldn't be here. And so, He's, he's very clear when the exception is going to come, it's because he commands it in order to raise up seed, ultimately. Now, are there things that Joseph Smith um, did that maybe we would scratch our head and say, why did he do that with plural marriage? Of course. And I think that's a, an example of where God often gives a command, but he doesn't always give you the handbook up front. And he lets you use your agency and figure things out. And so those early saints, they tried to figure this out, and sometimes there were some, there were some struggles along the way, and it's okay. We can, as uh, Elder Neil L. Anderson said on one occasion, let's give Brother Joseph a break. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt for now as we move forward until all things are revealed. Now we shift into the not just marriage, but what Jacob teaches these men in front of him about how they're treating women in general and what the implications are. This will, this will be surprising to some people because most of us have grown up thinking Nephite's good, Lamanite's bad. Nephite's righteous, Lamanite's evil. Watch what Jacob says to his people. Uh, look at verse 33. For they, the people, and by the way, you have the Lord of hosts right there at the last line of verse 32, right above you again. 
for they shall not lead away captive the daughters of my people because of their tenderness, save I shall visit them with a sore curse, even unto destruction. Hmm. Jacob is link linking destruction with how they're treating the women, and, and in some cases the children. For they shall not commit whoredoms like unto them of old, saith the Lord of hosts. Um, now behold, my, be my brethren, ye know these commandments were given to our father Lehi. You've known them before. He's telling you, you're not, you're not innocent. You know Father Lehi taught us this, and by the way, Father Lehi left Jerusalem 55 years ago, so it's not, it's not like a hundred years have passed. This is, this is in your lifetime. You heard Lehi teach these things and then Nephi teach these things, so you're not ignorant of these. Um, verse 40, or 35, behold, ye have done greater iniquities than the Lamanites our brethren. Jacob's, Jacob's coming down very harshly on these people. You have broken the hearts of your tender wives and lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them, and the sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you." Um, and he doesn't end there. The chapter continues, even though we have a, a chapter break here. Um, look at verse 2. O all ye that are pure in heart, lift up your heads and receive the pleasing word of God, and feast upon his love, for ye may if your minds are firm forever. But woe, woe unto you that are not pure in heart, that are filthy this day before God. For except ye repent, the land is cursed for your sakes. And the Lamanites, which are not filthy like unto you, nevertheless they are cursed with a sore cursing, shall scourge you even unto destruction. Jacob is picking up this theme saying, how you treat these women is actually going to lead to your destruction one day. Mormon is going to tell us later on it's because of the pride and the secret combinations among the people. Jacob, our, our second prophet, because Nephi was the first one to tell us about the destruction at the end, Jacob is now linking it to the way that they're treating the women. And by the way, it doesn't take a genius to just stop and think through the entire history of the Book of Mormon moving forward. Think about the women and how they're treated by Nephite men, the way Jacob's saying, You're, you, are, you are committing these, these whoredoms and these wickedness uh, or these wicked uh, acts against the women. Well, you've got uh, a group of Nephite men who burn the women and children in Ammonihah because they believe. You've got a group of Nephite men who totally and completely abandon their wives and children to be slaughtered by the Lamanites in Mosiah chapter 19 as they follow King Noah to the safety out in the wilderness. You've got 24 Lamanite daughters who are abducted by Nephite men and forced into a marriage relationship. You've got um, the slaughter, the, the brutal treatment of the Lamanite women in Moroni chapter 9 by the Nephite men. Um, you've got Morianton who beats up his maidservant. You've got story after story after story of Nephites doing awful things to women. Jacob Jacob is fully aware, he, he's a prophet and he's been talking to Nephi and he knows things and he's saying, this is going to lead to your utter destruction, the way you treat the women versus the way the Lamanites treat their women 
Notice verse 6, chapter 3. Now this commandment they observe to keep, the commandment given by Lehi, which is one wife. The Lamanites are observing to keep that commandment. Wherefore, because of this observance in keeping this commandment, the Lord God will not destroy them, uh, but he will be merciful unto them, and one day they shall become a blessed pe people. Um, brothers and sisters, I think this is in our Book of Mormon um, as a handbook for us today, that we live in a society that if we're not careful, we will we will begin to see women and, and treat them in such a way that is starting to echo the way a lot of these Nephites that Jacob is, is rebuking them for are treating those women. And the Lord of hosts is fully aware of what's going on. I think that collectively we could do a better job in how we treat the women and the children and our, and our, our dear wives and our families. Jacob does not want the Nephite men to miss the serious context of what he's teaching. As we've talked about, he uses this phrase, Lord of hosts, this military phrase. In fact, if you look carefully back in chapter 2, the, the uses of kind of military language, smiting, piercing. Now remember, Jacob is speaking at the temple. What happens at the temple? Well, in our day, we don't do this anymore because Christ came and he's the last and final sacrifice. Days of Jacob, they would slaughter animals, they would pierce them, and there would be blood, it would be very messy and loud. It was a bit like a butcher shop and a barbecue. I'm not trying to be um, uh, flippant about it, but they would slaughter animals and cook them and share, share the meal with God. My point here is that this context where the Nephite men saw animals being slaughtered and pierced, and now Jacob's talking about the Lord of hosts, the men could see that God is a military hero, and if I cross him, I'm going to be like these animals, and I really actually don't need to become like an animal. I actually need to become more like God. In fact, it's very interesting, Second Nephi, sorry, Jacob chapter 2, verse 15, oh that you would show, oh that God would show you that he can pierce you with one glance of his eye, he can smite you to the dust. The key theme here, God wants us to be humble. I'm going to talk about two quick Quick words before we move on to some other chapters. The word dust and humility and the name Adam are all related. The word humility in Latin actually literally means dust or earth. And so when we're told to be humble, it's to be like the dust. Now guess what the name Adam means in Hebrew? It actually is related to the Hebrew word for earth or dust. I don't need to write it out, but the main idea here is that God gave Adam this name to remind him of where he came from. Here we have divine origin, but our earthly bodies were built from the dust and dirt of the earth. And we shouldn't think that the dust we wear or the dust education I got or the dust I drive is anybody any better than anybody else's dust we get very prideful that our dust is better than everybody else's, and we forget that our true identity, now, okay, yes, we are children of God, but in this life, we're also dirt. Now, I, I'm not trying to offend anybody here, but we shouldn't think we're so awesome. We can go out and oppress other people and take their resources and practice whoredoms. God will put us back into the dust where we came from, and he gave us this name to remind us to be humble, that ultimately, 
he will lift us out of the dust into the salvation of his presence. And that is the meaning of the name Adam, and it shows up, this symbol, and this theme of humility shows up everywhere in Jacob in his speech trying to get the brethren to repent. That's a beautiful insight, Taylor. Um, it, it would be a shame if we were to end the lesson here um, because this is pretty heavy. This is serious stuff, and, and um, a prophet's role is not always to come and just pat us on the back and say, oh, you're doing wonderful, keep up the good work, don't change anything. We don't need prophets to do that. We need prophets to come and tell us what we can do to improve, obviously encourage us where possible, but in this case, Jacob's people are having serious struggles, and people today in our world today are having similar serious struggles. And so, rather than ending on this serious struggle note, we're going to finish with uh, chapter 4, where Jacob now preaches hope, where he preaches the solution. We've gotten the problems, the seeking after riches and the seeking after whoredoms in, in chapters 2 and 3 and the way they're treating the women and the children. Now we get the solution in chapter 4. Um, and by the way, Jacob is going to going to reveal some things here that are, are revolutionary. In a B.C. time period, this is revolutionary. Chapter 4, um, I, we would encourage you to read chapter 4 slowly and carefully, not through 2020 lenses, but through 550 B.C., 544 B.C. lenses and go, wow, he's, he's teaching some pretty profound uh, – he's connecting a lot of dots that don't get connected in the Old Testament. Yeah, and I'll just say real briefly that they lived the law of Moses. You see, we understand the fullness of the gospel, right? We have the restoration. Well, they didn't have that. And so this was actually huge news for the Nephites. They're like, they're living a law of Moses. They're at the temple. There's probably been animal sacrifice. They get that, and suddenly Jacob opens this huge, expansive view to, like, let me do a huge plot twist reveal for you what really what's going on here in this plan of salvation, this narrative of God's salvation. Yeah. I love, I love the prophet Jacob. I love his voice. I love his doctrine. I love the clarity with which he teaches. Um, he, he tells you about plates being written in the beginning, and you can, you can study that. I want to jump to verse 4. For, for this intent have we written these things, that they might know that we knew of Christ and we had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. So he's saying, look, this isn't unique to us. Everybody before us, these holy prophets, they knew, they saw of, of elements of the coming of the Christ. Now here's, here's the key, verse 5, behold, they believed in Christ and worshipped the Father in his name, and also we worship the Father in his name. And for this intent we keep the law of Moses, it pointing our souls to him. Brothers and sisters, sometimes if we're not careful, we'll say, oh, those poor people in the Old Testament, they just had the law of Moses, but we have the higher law that leads us to salvation and the covenant path. The reality is, is Jacob's telling us, look, we have the law of Moses, but we understand that the law of Moses isn't going to save us. We keep the law because it points us forward to Christ. Now, we have the higher law, and if we're not careful, we'll assume that the higher law is our Savior. It's not. Any law, any commandment, 
is simply there as a means, a connecting point to bring us to Christ. It's his job to save us. When I go to church on Sunday, I don't go thinking, wow, this is another tick mark on my, on my judgment ledger sheet that's going to qualify me to get into heaven. I'm not working my way into heaven by going to, to the church meetings every Sunday, and I'm not working my way into heaven every time I open the scriptures and read them, and I'm not deserving heaven every time I go to the temple or every time I go on a ministering visit or fulfill something in my church calling. Brothers and sisters, all of those things are means whereby I am connecting with Christ. I'm coming unto Christ. I'm trying to live the way he wants me to live. I'm, I'm turning my will to him and letting it be swallowed up in God's will to say, I want to become who thou would have me become. So as we look, as you look carefully at, at verse 4, 5, and 6, the role of all these things that God has given us, none of them save us. The one thing that God gave us that does save us is his Son, and his Son uses all these means to create these covenantal connections to, to help us to change our nature through his grace to come unto him. Look at verse 6, wherefore we search the prophets and we have many revelations in the spirit of prophecy, and having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope and our faith becometh unshaken, insomuch that we truly can command in the name of Jesus, and the, the elements are going to obey us. Um, there's a power in just trusting God, in following Christ, in having faith in Christ. There is a real power there that the world doesn't understand, that you move forward, you don't have all the answers, you don't have all the abilities to fix all the problems around you, but you just trust that if I keep doing these small and simple things, especially when I don't feel motivated to do it, if I will persist on the covenant path, things will be all right in the end. Verse 10, wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his, from his hand, for behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy, mercy over all his works. Wherefore, beloved brethren, be reconciled unto him through the atonement of Christ, his only begotten Son, and then you can attain all these things we're talking about. So as you move forward, um, worshiping the Father in the name of the Son, trying to go to church, trying to read your scriptures, trying to go to the temple, trying to fulfill your callings, trying to be a good person, recognize you're not perfect at any of those things, and it's okay because the person that you're seeking to connect with is perfect in all of those things, and he has enough and to spare. So Tyler and I really appreciate you guys spending time with us. We love sharing our testimonies and love the scriptures with, with people, and so thank you for taking time with us. We want to remind you that this is brought to you by Book of Mormon Central. We have lots of great supplemental resources. We've done lots of really short essays on many topics. You can go to our website, even to our Scripture Plus app, which you can download on a mobile device, and there's these little essays and uh, commentary that are embedded and help you answer some of these questions like, you know, what, what was God's law of marriage and what was Jacob's purpose in being at the temple to teach the people? And we hope that as you pursue and seek the Scriptures that you find the love of God in your life, and we bless you that you will find joy in your families and in the Lord. Know that you're loved.